Hello, you're listening to Talking Europe, the podcast of the UCL European Institute. My name is Claudia Sternberg, and I'm joined today by Professor Sascha Rosenlund. We'll be exploring something that affects our lives deeply and on many different levels. The idea that to be a fulfilled, a complete human being or a normal person, we really should be in a couple. We find this expectation everywhere. But is being in a couple really the best way to live or the only way to live? We're going to be asking how ideas on this differ across Europe and how they've changed over time. We'll also look at the life stories of some individual people and how they've navigated the couple norm in their own intimate lives. Sasha, welcome. Hi, nice to meet you. So you're Professor of Interdisciplinary Social Science here at UCL and also Dean of Social and Historical Sciences. And you've just published a book on the topic. Its title is The Tenacity of the Couple Norm, Intimate Citizenship Regimes in a Changing Europe. You wrote it together with four colleagues, um, for Isabel Krauhers, Tony Hellison, Anna-Christina Santos, and Maria Stoilova. In this podcast, we'll be hearing from all of you. But let's start with you, Sasha. Tell us, what is the couple norm? Well, the couple norm, as we uh, explain it in the book, is the powerful and ubiquitous psychosocial force. Uh, so a force that's at once both social and psychological uh, that maintains that being in a couple is the normal, natural and best way of living. Um, the couple norm shapes society, it shapes our social institutions, our culture, and it shapes our desires and imaginations um, to propel us towards and keep us within the couple form. And how did you go about in studying it for this book? Well, the thing is, we didn't start out uh, studying the couple norm. In fact, we didn't didn't really have a concept of the couple norm when we started the research. Um, the project was uh, was an EU funded project, uh, Framework Six, if we can remember back that far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was um, it was part of a, a big project that was called FEMSIT, uh, Gendered Citizenship in Multicultural Europe the impact of contemporary women's movements. Uh, We were a group of feminist researchers from across Europe who came together to study how women's movements had impacted upon gendered citizenship. And we had six work packages within the project, one of which was the work package that I was leading on intimate citizenship. Um, What we found in the course of doing that research, um, and we expanded in, in our project from women's movements to also look at lesbian, gay and bisexual movements, uh, we discovered um, that uh, that women's movements had a huge impact, and uh, women's and LGBT movements had had a huge impact on intimate citizenship, but, but also that there was quite a lot that hadn't changed. Ultimately, when we decided what we wanted to really devote the most amount of time writing about was, was the couple norm, because we were really struck through our research, through our kind of four-year project, by just how tenacious the couple norm is and how much it structures intimate citizenship and and the possibilities of people's lives across Europe. Great. Can you just explain um, and give us a definition of the intimate citizenship regime? Because we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Yes, sure. So that, I mean, that's a concept that also kind of came to us in the course of the research. Um, The notion of intimate citizenship uh, has been developed by a number of of sociologists. Uh, In particular, we draw on the work of Ken Plummer. Uh, a British sociologist who's written a lot about sexuality and intimacy. Um, and then we we added the word regime onto it in order to really capture the ways in which um, different, uh, different nations uh, have different structures and ways of organizing 
intimate citizenship that, that kind of coalesce together in a regime form. Um, so what do I mean by intimate citizenship? Well, I think, I think it's really about the extent to which people are full members of society, uh, full citizens with rights and responsibilities that are recognised by the state and by civil society in relation to their intimate lives, their close personal relationships. So it's about, it's about the extent of inclusion and belonging and full membership that people are able to have across the different types of ways that they may live their intimate lives. Thank you. And one of the things that's so great um, in reading this book, that in addition to the systemic level of the regime, you have a feeling of meeting lots of people as individuals, um, because you've, you've conducted um, very deep interviews with them. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so so the book um, the book kind of has I suppose almost sort of two elements. It has an analysis of the intimate citizenship regimes in each of the four countries that we studied, um, and we go into quite a lot of uh, of detail exploring the ways in which the intimate citizenship regimes have changed and unfolded um, over well over actually more than the last forty years, very often over over a kind of century or more. Um, so that's kind of one part of the book. But the other part of the book is the um, the case studies. So we did biographical narrative interviews with uh, 67 people across the four countries um, and, uh, and really in-depth uh, interviews with those people about their lives and personal relationships. And so the way we, we decided in the end to present uh, that material was through, through case studies, which we hope um, really do kind of help you get inside people's lives and their uh, their psychosocial experience, the kind of relationship between the society they're living in and their subjectivity and their sense of self, um, and how the couple norm uh, has, for all their diversity, and they are very, you know, each story is very different, very personal, very particular, uh, and the countries give very different context to people's lives, but actually what we're trying to pull out there is how the couple norm runs through their lives um, in very different ways in different places. So together, you and the team have looked at four different countries, and I think you're also from four or five different countries. These are Norway, Portugal, Bulgaria, and the UK. So you have one Northwest European welfare state, one Southern European Catholic country that used to be a totalitarian, one post-communist ex-totalitarian regime, and then the UK, which is your base. What you and I are going to do now is that we'll play and discuss little segments of a few minutes each that we've discussed with all of your co-authors. And in the first round, we'll hear about the intimate citizenship regimes in your different countries. And after that, um, some of the personal life stories you've recorded. Let's start closest to home with the UK. This is what Isabel Crowhurst had to say about intimate citizenship here. Okay, so uh, in terms of the main characteristics of the intimate citizenship regime of uh, the United Kingdom, we should say that the United Kingdom has a long liberal tradition of refraining from giving the state an explicit role in family matters. In fact, there wasn't even a field specifically named family policy until the Labour governments of the 19, late 1990s. Lacking an explicit family policy until just over two decades ago, however, doesn't mean that there hasn't been any policy intervention on this uh, intervention of the state in intimate life. In fact, many laws and policies in the UK have historically promoted and defended the heterosexual married cohabiting couple, a couple that 
within this framework was also expected to abide by quite rigid gender roles with the man uh, as the breadwinner and his wife uh, uh, as, uh, as uh, the dependent homemaker. Of course, over the decades, many factors have contributed to disrupting the social and legal privileging of the normative uh, family unit. And I will just mention some uh, particularly salient ones. For example, feminist and lesbian and gay movements have been a powerful force for change in the country and have exerted great influence on attitudes towards sexuality and personal relationships. It was in particular under uh, new labor that most uh, of the key demands of these movements were inscribed in new equality legislation, which addressed in particular the recognition and protection of the intimate uh, relationships of non-heterosexuals. And another aspect to consider uh, is the political economy of the couple norm. In other words, how shifting economic structures and systems have affected the couple norm. The UK, after the Second World War, experienced a shift to post-industrial service economy, which led to the withering away of the welfare model based on the male breadwinner, female homemaker, uh, which, which, um, which was replaced by a new liberal welfare state that promotes uh, the adult worker model instead. This model presumes and expects adults, both men and women, to be uh, economically productive, and it prescribes that the best way to achieve this is uh, to be in a stable and committed couple, whether married or unmarried, heterosexual or same-sex. So what we have witnessed in the past two, two decades in particular in the UK is a liberalization of the uh, United Kingdom's intimate citizenship regime, with significant legislative changes brought forward also under recent conservative-led governments. This liberalization has entailed a decline of the privileging of heterosexual marriage as the gold standard intimate uh, relationship and the recognition that what, was once, uh, uh, what once were viewed as alternative intimate life arrangements are now more mainstream and accepted as long as they are expressed and take shape within the economically productive, stable and committed uh, couple form. This of course leaves those outside of this normative framework comparatively less sheltered, effectively more marginalized and viewed as not fully complete and not fully realized as individuals and as citizens. That was Isabel Crowhurst on intimate citizenship in the UK. If the UK had a relatively hands-off family policy until 20 years ago, Maria Stoilova contrasted this to a very active state in regulating intimate lives in Bulgaria. Here's what she had to say. What I find interesting about uh, the intimate citizenship regime in Bulgaria uh, is how comprehensive its codification is. There is a large number of regulatory texts, for example, the, the constitution, there's the family code, there's penal code, um, which discuss various aspects of personal life, of intimacy, of care, uh, in their very formal and normative capacity. And this is really helpful when you're trying to explore uh, not only how law and policy are changing, but also to see how transformations of cultural norms practices of lived lives are happening. So of the four intimate citizenship regimes that we studied, um, Bulgaria is definitely uh, the most conservative one. 
Um, even at present, there's virtually no recognition of intimacy outside heterosexual coupledom. This means that only married couples uh, who by constitution actually are defined as being of the opposite sex are entitled to uh, a range of different privileges. For example, inheritance, family name, um, even assisted reproduction or things like presence at birth. And um, there have been numerous attempts to change that, mostly driven by feminist and LGBT organizations. Uh, but so far, the heteronormative coupledom has remained tenacious, shall I say. Um, this doesn't mean that everyday intimate practices are not changing, uh, quite the opposite. There are an increasing number of people living openly as gay, lesbian, queer, um, who are raising children in same-sex couples, cohabiting outside marriage. In fact, um, it's been since 2006 that the majority of Bulgarian children are actually born outside wedlock. But what this means actually is that the regulation has been slow to catch up with everyday practices um, and the gaps between the normative and the lived coupledom um, have been growing. It also means, I think, and perhaps more importantly even, that normative coupledom has been upheld as some sort of desirable standard um, of good citizenship. Now, we must say that the, the legal and the, the regulatory uh, landscape of intimate citizenship in Bulgaria um, has not been static. Uh, in spite of the tenacity of the couple norm, um, there have been important and very significant changes uh, in the regulation of intimate life. Um, this took place um, especially around the, the collapse of the, the socialist regime in 1989 and the accession of the European Union uh, in 2007. So prior to the EU accession, um, the age of consent was equalized, uh, same-sex sexuality was fully decriminalized, um, there was new legislation which banned discrimination uh, practically in all spheres of life. Sasha, both Isabel for the UK and Maria for Bulgaria um, noted um, how in particular the feminist and lesbian gay movements were instrumental in bringing about change. And of course, that was the research question for your FEMSIT project. How important have these social movements been in, in, in changing the couple norm and, and the intimate citizenship regimes? I think they've been hugely transformative uh, in terms of intimate citizenship regimes. Um, we looking across the four countries and studying uh, laws and policies uh, in each country in relation to intimate life. It was really clear that uh, that the social movements had had impacted upon law and policy very significantly. Um, not, not exa at exactly the same time in each country um, and not exactly to the same extent, uh, but they had been transformative in each country, L less so uh, in Bulgaria, but even in Bulgaria, we can certainly see the impact, particularly uh, more recently of the, the lesbian and gay movement. So how have they changed intimate citizenship regimes? So across the four countries, I think there's really clear uh, sense in which processes of depatriarchalization have taken place um, since the particularly since the late 60s, uh, there's been an equalization uh, between men and women um, and uh, 
a liberalization of, of law and policy in relation to intimate life. So in relation to divorce law, first of all, um, and then later on the regulation of same-sex sexuality has been, has been liberalized in all the countries. Um, and there's been a real pluralization of uh, ways of living intimate life Cohabitation, um, in particular, um, you know, outside marriage has has increased enormously. Um, it was illegal uh, for people to cohabit outside marriage in Norway um, before the impact of the women's movement. So, um, so cohabitation has has increased vastly. Uh, single parenting and births outside marriage, uh, as women have been able to live uh, economically independent lives more easily, as there have been increasing levels of of state support for single parenting. Um, and as the pressure to marry has has reduced, then births outside marriage um, have increased. Um, so there's been really increasing recognition of diversity um, across all four countries, uh, although less so in Bulgaria. Um, and a process of what we called homo normalization. Um, so homosexuality has become increasingly normal um, rather than being pathologized. And you know, none of those things really would have happened without those social movements. So we see the impact of the social movements really fundamentally in those changes. Um, that doesn't mean that you know, everything is, uh, is totally easy and cool and, and intimate citizenship regimes support every way of living intimate life. Um, our analysis, both of the, the law and policy, but also of um, the stories of the people we interviewed, suggested that there are four really strong core norms at the heart of contemporary intimate citizenship regimes. Um, there's the gender norm, um, so the norm of differentiation and complementarity and hierarchy between men and women, that still exists, um, it's very much still there. Um, even though it's it's perhaps lessened in its potency. Uh, the heteronorm um, that, that says that heterosexuality is, is still uh, preferred, although not, not to the same extent, but it is still, it is still the norm. Um, although we are seeing a homo normalization, I wouldn't say that heterosexuality and homosexuality have the same cultural weight. It's, it's not as easy to be uh, in a same-sex relationship still as it is in a, in a different sex relationship. We identified also the procreative norm, um, the kind of push uh, towards reproduction and having children and the sense that uh, uh, that, that is the normal way to live and that if you don't have children you are, you are in some ways still quite abnormal. Um, and then the focus of our book, the couple norm, Let's move on to Norway. It's, an, it's a very interesting case. Um, Maria was telling us how in, in Bulgaria, state regulation and policy was lagging behind um, everyday practices were already changing. And um, Tone Hellesen, by contrast, um, for Norway, observed a, a pattern where the state at times brought in reforms that preceded shifts in public mm -hmm. opinion and really kind of took popular attitudes with it. Um, and she also notes that social movements in Norway worked very much with the state in bringing about this change and that trust was a very central factor in this. Many researchers have argued that institutional trust in government, in authorities and institution of the welfare state is particularly high in the Nordic welfare states. And this trust can be also be traced historically and can be seen both as a kind of condition for and as a result of the well-functioning welfare state. And this has also meant that progressive social movements like the labor movement first, the women's movement, and later the lesbian and gay movements uh, have been able to work closely with the state bodies and have wanted to work closely with the state bodies and sharing 
this kind of extensive will to reform uh, in the project of securing an equal and harmonious and stable coupled family life for all. So this uh, equal, harmonious and stable coupled family life for all has kind of been a goal since uh, different um, groups and also the state started to work on the marriage laws in the early 20th century. So Norway got a no-fault divorce already in 1909. Uh, and one of the reasons for this has been interpreted by historians as a wish from the government to, to kind of make marriage attractive for more women and for all group of women. This was a period where this kind of new women seeking education and careers and, and maybe something uh, sometimes um, rejecting marriage um, on the grounds of, of rather wanting education and, and careers. But then the state uh, kind of liberalized the, the marriage laws, making uh, the obligations and duties in marriage equal for both men and women. And as I said, um, making it a no-fault divorce already in 1909, was supposed to kind of make marriage more attractive again to these new women. Let's move on to the final one of the countries you've studied, to Portugal, where Cristina, Anna Cristina Santos, described the intimate citizen regime like this. Possibly more than any of the other three countries that we discuss uh, in the book, the Portuguese intimate citizenship regime has made quite a radical break with its recent past. As a reminder, Portugal experienced the longest dictatorship in Western Europe, nearly half of the 20th century. The regime was then influenced by the Catholic Church, focused on restricting women's rights and actively punishing same-sex encounters. The mantra, God, nation, family, promoted and upheld rigidly dichotomous gender roles, both in law and in mainstream culture. Then came the end of dictatorship in 1974, and with it, Portugal underwent an extensive process of juridical and political modernization. Gender equality was enshrined in the constitution, uh, laws that subordinated women to men were abolished, Women gained legal access to all jobs and full suffrage. The notion of the head of the family disappeared. Divorce was uh, legalized and homosexuality decriminalized. In 2001, the legal recognition of de facto unions for both heterosexual and same-sex couples was introduced. And even more radically, the same rights were opened up to cohabitants of any number of regardless and regardless of ties of kinship or sexual romantic love. This was called the shared economy law. Portugal is currently at the forefront of LGBTI plus rights recognition on a global scale. And since 2007, abortion is legal, a major achievement for the women's movement, which had been fighting for this uh, for over 30 years. Also in relation to practices, significant changes in intimate life emerged alongside wider processes of democratization and in the context of the increasing visibility of women's and LGBTI plus organizations. A striking example is the decline in the marriage rate from nine per 1000 in 1970 
to three per 1,000 in 2017, lower than the UK and Norway, for instance. However, coupledom remains the norm with only 8% of solo living in the overall population. Sasha, is Portugal representative here in its very low rate of um, solo living with only 8%? We certainly do seem to hear more, a lot more these days about um, people who are not in a couple, whether by choice or, or not by choice. No, indeed. I mean, there, there are increasingly high proportions of the population living outside the couple form um, across all four countries. Um, but it is it's at different levels in the different countries, the highest level of solo living being in Norway um, and then the UK. Um, but but it is increasing. And the people we interviewed were all people who were living in some ways at, at the edges of the couple norm or, or kind of outside or against the couple norm. Um, so we interviewed people who were single, um, uh, who were in same-sex relationships uh, or lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, or and or who were um, in living apart together relationships, lat relationships, so were, were in relationship with someone they didn't live with, um, uh, and or were living in shared housing, um, so were living with people who they were not biologically related to. So this kind of this this captured people who are not uh, kind of normatively coupled. They, they may have been in a couple relationship, but they weren't in the kind of conventional cohabiting heterosexual couple relationship. Any of them, um, and uh, you know there are increasing numbers of people living uh, in these ways. We don't have great data on living apart together, for instance, across all four countries, but we do know that more and more people are doing it. Um, and uh, more people, people are taking longer to settle into couples. So living in shared housing for longer or living alone um, and relationships, couple relationships when they do exist, um, don't necessarily last as long because divorce is more possible. It's more possible to leave your partner. Um, and uh, and so people live live are living in all the countries for longer periods of their lives outside uh, the, the cohabiting couple form, um, different different numbers in different places. And why did you choose to study couples or, or individuals who lived outside the couple norm or lived couples in unconventional ways? So if you go back to our original research question, which was about the impact that women's movements uh, and lesbian and gay movements had had on intimate citizenship, uh, we kind of wanted to take a test case, I suppose, of, of the group of people um, you might expect to have been most impacted by by those social movements. So people who are living, I suppose, the most unconventional lives, um, the, the people who are not in the conventional couple. Um, and, and what really struck us was we, we had here this group of, of people, these interviewees, who were living, you know, what to, to kind of normative society is quite unconventional, unconventional lives, but still living very much shaped by the couple norm. So they weren't conforming to it um, in their lives uh, in, in kind of really obvious ways, but it really structured how they thought, uh, the social pressures they lived with, uh, their, what their families and friends were saying to them, um, how they felt about their lives, you know, about how, how they were, um, the extent to which they felt they were kind of living a good life. Let's have a listen to some of these stories then and start with Christina um, telling us about Vera. It's a great illustration, I find, of how you intertwine your interpretation of personal life narratives and general observations of what's going on in the different countries and globally. So here we go. 
Let me tell you a bit about Vera, a Portuguese woman in her late 30s who identifies as heterosexual and as having relationships with men who are significantly older. Vera presented a story about the conscious rejection of key aspects of the contemporary Portuguese intimate citizenship regime, particularly the expectations of sameness of partners, of cohabitation and of procreation that are so central to the couple norm. So Vera was born in the early 1970s at the time of the overthrow of the dictatorship, the first child of a working class Portuguese couple. In telling the story of her life and personal relationships, Vera identified her relationship with Alberto as a determining influence on her intimate biography. They had met when they were both students and four years into the relationship, at the point at which it felt stable, long-standing, they decided to live together. At the time, moving in together seemed like the logical next step. They accepted unquestioningly the expectation that coupledom should eventually mean cohabitation. But two years after setting up a home together, the relationship broke down. Vera explained her firm belief that the relationship ended because cohabitation destroys love relationships. After this, she resolved never again to live with a partner. Since then, Vera had had two other significant relationships, both with older men first with Carlos for three years, and subsequently with her partner at the time of the interview, Victor, with whom she had a living apart relationship for two years. She discussed the issue of cohabitation with each of them and her commitment to not living together prevailed in both relationships. Vera's narrative expressed a strong sense of selfhood, a drive towards preservation of personal freedom, the pursuit of mutual pleasure, finding what made her happy and what she thought was best for her at a particular moment in time. In this regard, her story constituted a powerful example of the cultural impact of women's feminist demands for autonomy and self-determination as individuals outside the couple form. Vera's current life was grounded in a stable, long-term relationship with a gay friend called Bruno. They had bought a flat together and registered their non-sexual, non-romantic domestic partnership under the shared economy law, which I mentioned before. Vera's way of living her intimate life posed profound challenges to many facets of the couple norm. Although in Vera's narrative, there were no extended accounts about the impacts or implications of age difference in intimate relationships, in practice, Vera's experience also challenged the expectation that spouses or partners should be alike in terms of age. Playing knowingly, queerly even, with her gay male partner in domesticity to reconfigure the idea and ideal of the conjugal couple, whilst also pursuing a sexual love relationship with a man with whom she has no intention of living, she has been reinventing the couple form in creative ways that do not comply with the traditions and expectations of the Portuguese intimate citizenship regime. Vera's life is indeed exemplary of new practices of intimacy that have become possible in the wake of the women's liberation movement. Right, so here we have a great example of somebody reinventing couple life in, in their own best life. 
I think that Vera is a really interesting case because um, she uh, her story kind of demonstrates how people do live at a tangent to the couple norm. They challenge the couple norm. Um, it's it's a powerful force, but you know people are are resisting and and reformulating things all the time in their lives. Um, and it's really interesting that she's chosen to uh, to kind of make a kind of non-conventional couple with her gay male friend and and kind of live with him and commit to him. So she's not living outside the couple norm, but she's certainly living in a different relationship to, to the idea of the couple. Let's hear from Maria again about Diana in Bulgaria. Diana and her story left a very strong impression on, on me. She was in her 40s when I met her. Um, a heterosexual Bulgarian Roma woman. As a child, um, Diana and her six siblings were taken away from her parents, uh, who were marginally employed and were seen by the state to be failing their parental responsibilities. Diana was placed in a residential school. Uh, she was under strict state supervision uh, and she spent there four years. Uh, during which she ran away from the school on many occasions. Um, during her first escape, um, Diana was 12. Uh, she had a sexual encounter with an older Roma boy, uh, enacting what in Bulgaria Roma culture is considered to be a marriage. She lived with her husband in hiding for about a month uh, until social services found her and returned her to the school. When Diana was 16, her boyfriend uh, used a special provision uh, to obtain a permission to enter a civil marriage with her. In this way, Diana was released from the school um, two years early at 16 instead of 18. Um, and entering a legally recognized marital couple meant that Diana was granted full rights um, as a citizen, as an adult, and was no longer considered to need the protection of the state. The privileged status of marriage played a key role in her life once again, uh, several years later. At that time, Diana was um, undergoing divorce from her husband. She was cohabiting with a new partner and she was pregnant from him. Uh, the state initiated a court case against Diana and her new partner for adultery, uh, for abandoning her spouse in their words and living with somebody else. Uh, this provision was introduced actually in the 1950s. It was part of a wave of uh, pronatalist conservative changes that the socialist government introduced. And uh, because of this provision, Diana was facing imprisonment for up to three years and public reprobation. So fortunately for Diana, the regime change happened in 1989, and that led to the um, a appeal of this legislation and uh, the court case was dropped. Um, however, Diana was never able to correct the paternity of the daughter who was born during the divorce. Uh, the privileged status of marriage at the time uh, and now, in fact, meant that uh, the state registered her, her first husband as the father of the child. Uh, so that girl uh, could not share the surname of her biological father uh, she could not inherit him uh, when he died. Diana too, actually, after being in a cohabiting relationship with her partner for 20 years, uh, was not entitled to any property rights 
or to survive, uh, survivors benefit um, upon um, his death. Sasha, what are your thoughts on Diana's story? It's a, it's a very moving story. It's a very powerful story. Um, it's a story of, um, of a really repressive regime and how it operates on people's intimate lives. Um, it's also a story of, of the experience of a Roma woman um, in Bulgaria. Um, and our, our research um, paid particular attention to the experiences of members of minoritized and racialized groups. Um, and we felt that was really important to, uh, to be kind of at the heart of our story too, to kind of recognize that there are whole sets of additional layers of experience and, and often of oppression and uh, of kind of you know, powerful structuring processes uh, that weigh down upon people from minoritized groups. Um, so I think you can't not hear that as a story of, of a Roma woman in Bulgaria. Um, it's and it's it's quite different from from the stories of um, uh, of, of you know for instance uh, white people in Britain that we interviewed. That's a good cue. Um, let's listen to the story of a, a Pakistani British man, Ismail, told by Isabel. Ismail is a second generation British Pakistani heterosexual man, a successful lawyer in his mid thirties who felt that his intimate life had been an uphill struggle all along because he had to confront and abide by not one but two normative frameworks and conventions about intimacy, the British and the Pakistani one. In the three long-term relationships that he had, Ismail fell in love with women who were not from his cultural, religious, class and ethnic background. In this way, he defied the expectation and injunction that couples should be alike. This always caused troubles in his relationships because he found it difficult to cope with the disapproval, real or imagined, ex uh, expressed by his family and friends. In fact, Ismail never even told his parents about the first two of his uh, long-term relationships and hid the third one with a white uh, British woman for a long time even though they had been cohabiting for over uh, a year. When he finally told his parents about his girlfriend under tremendous pressure from her who wanted to be recognized as part of his family, his mom and his sister in particular were quite disappointed. At that point, Ismail felt that he had to propose to his girlfriend, but by then their relationship had deteriorated and she refused. Having done what he thought was the right thing, coming clean to his parents and proposing to his long-term girlfriend turned out to make everyone unhappy and left him humiliated. So what I think is interesting about Ishmael in relation to the UK intimate citizenship regime is that as a heterosexual man, he didn't face exclusions from lack of legal and uh, policy recognition. Uh, nevertheless, the couple norm with its injunctions operate in many different ways. Uh, for example, in his case, he, he felt that he had to propose and get married to reassure his family that he would settle down and become a respectable adult. So in a sense, this uh, signifies this, the, 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 still import, the importance that is still attributed to legal, the legal formalization of relationships. And also, even in the context of a very diverse city such as London, the potency and expectation uh, of the expectation and injunction that couples should be alike is very conspicuous uh, still. Right, so, so Ishmael, like, like there in Portugal too, is challenging this idea that couples should be alike. 
Is this a general trend that you've seen over your interviews? I don't know if it's a trend, but we certainly we certainly found people struggling with the expectation injunction that um, that partners would be alike. Expectation of similarity between partners that the partners should be from the same ethnicity, religion, class, age, um, and many of our interviewees were struggling with how difficult it is to have relationships across heritage, mixed heritage relationships. Um, we were also really struck by the extent to which uh, our interviewees um, experienced the need for family approval um, and the idea that the couple is a matter for the family and the pressure still to marry. So although it's not obligatory to be married anymore, um, there is still a real expectation of marriage and lifelong commitment um, that's kind of a fundamental part of how the couple norm operates. So I think all of those are there in Ishmael's story, um, as in many of the others. Our final case study is Tone Hellesens. It's about Paul, a gay man in Norway who struggled with his um, homosexuality when he was young, but now as a middle-aged man, he lives a very successful life with a stable partner. Paul uh, really cherished that in, in addition to this on the surface, very uh, conventional and, and kind of uh, um, couple normative life, he also has a very active uh, uh, sex life with a lot of other men and, and he feels that this is what gives his life uh, a kind of edge and meaning and he really appreciates uh, uh, this kind of break with, with uh, couple normativity and he feels that the uh, gay movement has been too focused on marriage, too focused on, on gays having children and kind of uh, conforming to the heteronormative standards. So he feels that that uh, the lesbian and gay movement has um, has become very uh, conform and kind of uh, ignoring uh, the sexual part of homosexuality, which he uh, finds as uh, the biggest kind of force in his life. Well, again, we see the negotiation and contestation of norms in action. We do, and, and two really interesting contrasting case studies in um, Norway where um, we can see the, um, the way in which sex within the couple plays out as, as, as kind of constituent expectation injunction of, that's part of the couple norm, uh, but, but can play out in quite different ways. And I think... I mean, I think one of the kind of lessons of, of the research for us um, was just how much diversity there still is whilst people are, are being um, constrained and structured by the couple norm, that they still manage to live in very different ways and have very different beliefs and ideas about how to live. So why then is the couple norm still so tenacious when so much has changed? Is there something about human nature that makes us want to be in a couple? That I suppose is the six million dollar question. I mean, we you know we do um, we do a kind of sociological analysis of the couple norm, a historical, legal, policy analysis of, of how it exists, continues to exist, and in a sense becomes clearer and clearer as other elements of uh, of kind of the normative structuring of of intimate citizenship are stripped away. Uh, the couple norm kind of becomes clearer and clearer. Um, so there is a kind of uh, a path dependency about it. You know, it, it, the couple norm exists because it's existed and it continues to exist um, in law and policy. But I think your kind of notion of, of human nature has to 
has to be at play here. Um, so we, we're also trying to do a psychosocial analysis um, and think about how the couple norm is, is laid down in our subjectivities. It becomes part of us and of how we imagine uh, what a good life is and what we want. Um, uh, and it's, it structures our subjectivity. Um, use the notion of, of the normative unconscious uh, that, that comes from an American psychoanalyst called Lynn Layton. Um, so our kind of unconscious is structured through norms. Um, um, but maybe there's even something beyond that, uh, possibly. Um, and we kind of, uh, we, we, we sort of dip our toe into thinking about the, whether there's something um, about what it is to be human that is about being fundamentally connected to one other person, that is the experience of having been um, a baby in one in in, a, in another person. Um, so this this may sound um, just just sort of hard nosed social scientists. It may sound a bit far fetched, but you know, is there something fundamental to kind of the human experience? of having been gestated inside another body that means the connection, a, a sort of deep, powerful, intimate connection to one other person is what we're always seeking. Um, and so there's some speculation in the book about that um, and about the extent to which you know, we, we seek security and closeness through attachment to one other person and that there's something kind of very deeply embedded in our psyches, in our kind of need for that. We've spoken for a long time without mentioning the pandemic, um, which obviously has, has huge implications on the couple norm. And I happen to know that you and the team are working on an update of this book in light of COVID. How has COVID affected the couple norm? Yeah, so that's our, that's our kind of coming together again. We, we finished the book um, during the pandemic and, and then very rapidly realized that actually there was more to be said. Uh, about about how how the four intimate citizenship regimes that we've now studied in quite a lot of detail have responded to this uh, this disease that is a disease that thrives on intimacy. Um, you know, so how could we not want to write about it? Um, it's a it's a kind of um, it's a disease that is uh, that is spread through closeness and through through bodily intimacy. Not a sexually transmitted disease, but it's about the closeness between people. Um, so we thought it would actually be really interesting to look at how the four countries um, have responded, how the regulations and laws that they've put in place during the pandemic um, have sought to regulate intimate life um, and uh, the different ways in which uh, they have, well, what they've assumed uh, in terms of how people live their lives. You know, what is the baseline assumption of, of the family, of the household? Uh, of personal relationships um, and the countries have regulated in really quite different ways have, uh, have had um, they've had surprisingly kind of non-normative assumptions which is probably very sensible they haven't you know assumed everyone does live in a heterosexual family or couple but they've approached regulating uh, intimacy during the pandemic in quite different ways so so that's our that's our project at the moment and we will be writing that up. We probably see uh, regressions as well as big progression well, we've certainly seen uh, we've certainly seen uh, that it's really quite difficult uh, during a pandemic to not live with people. Um, that it's it's been particularly hard for people who do live alone. Um, and countries different uh, different countries have recognised that to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and you know, in in Britain, we've had the concept of the bubble, but that that didn't emerge at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, that had to uh, had to sort of take form over time. 
uh, when it was sort of gradually recognized that actually people living alone were not going to survive emotionally and practically if they weren't allowed to actually have uh, some kind of connection, some kind of intimate connection with someone who lived outside their home. Different countries have done it in different ways to greater or lesser extent. Bulgaria, interestingly, has really not regulated uh, how people have been living their intimate lives really much at all. Um, and that's really interesting to us because as we heard Maria talking about, Bulgaria has a history of, of really quite severe intervention in the regulation of, of intimate life. Actually, they've kind of stayed away and the regulations have very much been about the public sphere, not the private sphere. So we're interested, too, in the kind of relationship between public and private um, and personal and political and how that plays out across the four countries. So would you say we're, we're at the at the tail end of a revolution in intimate citizenship regimes and, and the couple norm, or are we only at the beginning of yet greater change? I think everything changes all the time in social life um, and um, change is, is, is somewhat unpredictable. Um, I don't think 20 or 30 years ago, people would have expected quite as much change. Um, I, I remember, um, Back in the uh, the early 2000s, maybe 1999, I was just starting a research project um, with colleagues and I said, you know, I didn't think that it would be very long until same sex marriage would be uh, would be a thing in Britain. And my colleagues, all feminist sociologists, profoundly disagreed with me. They said, there's just no way that's going to happen. Um, and I said, I really think it will. Um, now, I'm not saying I'm a great oracle of the future, but um, but I think uh even I, who, who thought that it would happen, have been surprised by just the extent to which things have changed um, and cultures have changed. And, uh, you know, for instance, now how actually kind of, yeah, how, how relatively easy and normal it is for young people to, uh, to traverse sexual identity categories, you know, with great fluidity. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was out yesterday afternoon in my neighborhood and I saw, I think I counted four young same-sex couples walking around holding hands. Um, you know, that's that still to me is quite an amazing sight uh, as someone who kind of grew up in the, the 1980s um, and experienced Section 28 of the Local Government Act that, you know, forbade uh, the teaching, the promotion of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. So I think, you know, cultural norms have changed a huge amount. You can kind of see the beginnings of, of change, but you don't know how fast it's going to go. You also don't know whether it's going to be rolled back. And I think that you know, that's, that's always a possibility. And we see at the moment quite a lot of forces uh, of, uh, of regression and uh, of challenge to the changes in intimate life um, that have gone on, you know, really quite powerful um, forces against those changes. So I don't think that, that change is inevitably one way. I don't think it's always progressive. Um, and I don't think it can be quite predicted um, how, it, how it unfolds and the speed with which it unfolds. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm not going to predict where, where we'll be in 20 years' time. <laughs> Sasha Rosedale, many thanks. This was Talking Europe, the UCL European Institute's podcast on all things Europe across UCL and its departments. Thank you for listening.